Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When I first started podcasting, I had no real idea of how it was going to go. I knew that I liked history. I knew that I liked teaching history. And I knew, of course, that I was really interested in how history progressed and how diplomacy failed, of course. This is a story I've told loads of times before, so I'm not going to go into much detail on it. But recently, we passed 150 patrons, like 150 people supporting this podcast on Patreon. And that's... I mean, that's amazing. I remember celebrating 100 downloads, and now 150 people have decided that they love this podcast so much that they want to give money to it to support it even further. And that's just incredible. I can't thank you guys enough for that. I really, really can't. And this episode right here, I was going to release it in September, I was going to release it in October or whenever, but I decided to just release it now to coincide with the fact that we are 150 patrons strong. So, I hope you guys enjoy it. It's a pretty good one, and in fact, it's one of my favourite stories, but it's not exactly the most uplifting story you could possibly find. A small reminder, if you guys would like to support this podcast on Patreon, and you'll find some really awesome stories just like these, and there's so much great content to come. I really can't wait to start podcasting again in September. Somewhat addicted, but I'm fine. It's all fine. Everything's fine. And I hope you guys enjoy this. Remember, go to wdfpodcast.com or go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails to join the best group of history supporters out there. That's right. When diplomacy fails is on Patreon and thanks to you guys, we are making history thrive. A reminder to you guys that this episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks is, as is generally the case with When Diplomacy Fails Thinks, supported by its own self-contained blog post episode. So, Make sure you check the description of this episode, just press the description or just unlock your phone or player or whatever, and the link for the blog post episode should be there. So look out there if you want to see the painting that depicts this whole scene. It's a pretty good one and it gives you a pretty good idea of exactly what Alexis faced in his relationship with his father, Peter the Great. I will, of course, reference this again near the end of the episode just in case you forget, but there you go. Alrighty. Let's do this, the very first proper episode of When Diplomacy Fails Thinks. Enjoy the intro, because I'm pretty happy with it myself. We believe that peace is at hand. I don't need to tell you, of all people, that the United Nations has a special stake and special responsibility 
in promoting respect for human rights. Well, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was our finest hour. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. But the manner of death seemed unimportant. Murder had been done at Bougainville. God alone knows how many men and boys have died there during the last 12 years. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Territorial questions and arguments of power, obsolete through they are, still prevail over the essential demands of common welfare and justice. The North Atlantic Treaty was born out of fear and frustration. Fear of the aggressive and subversive policies of communism and the effect of those policies on our security and well-being. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Before we begin, I need to ask you guys a question. How is your relationship with your family? More accurately, if you're blessed enough to have a dad, how is or how was your relationship with your dad? Did you fear him? Did you love him? Did you both love and fear him at the same time? Was there no real relationship there at all? Did you feel pressured to live up to his expectations of you? For those men out there, did you feel pressure as a son to match or better your dad's expectations? Was the relationship somewhat awkward because of this? Was your dad a domineering character? Did he have a reputation for achieving great things? Did he always seem to get his way? Maybe he was even a leader of men. The reason why I ask all these questions is, in this episode of When Diplomacy Fails, thinks we're introduced to one of the most infamous father-son relationships in history, that of Peter the Great and his son, Alexis. Peter was arguably one of the most important czars Russia has ever seen, ruling at the turn of the 18th century and dying in 1725. Peter's reign as czar saw Russian power brought to previously unforeseen levels, as the man's uncompromising stance on reform on infrastructural improvement, and on developing his empire to model that of Europe, saw Russia transcend the expectations of the day, and pass from darkness into light. His reign, in short, brought Russia out of the barbaric medieval world of Ivan the Terrible, and into the modern enlightenment. He was quite literally a towering figure in history, standing six foot seven, which even these days is strikingly tall, and back in the early 1700s seemed gargantuan, by contrast, to put it in perspective, Louis XIV was 5 foot 5, Frederick the Great 5 foot 4, and Holy Roman Emperor Leopold 5 foot 6. So Peter was a giant who ruled over a giant empire, the largest the world had ever seen. But this size came with an important caveat. The lands over which Peter claimed authority were not developed, they weren't industrious, and they weren't wealthy. Many were covered in forest, they were out of reach of civilization, they were steeped in mystery and teeming with hostile wildlife. 
Much of the lands were viewed not as profitable, but as wasteland. Siberia, for example, that reach of harsh wilderness which the Tsars had attempted to colonise for much of the 17th century, remained nightmarishly cold in winter and smotheringly warm in summer. Swamps, lakes, floodplains, uninhabited swathes of steppe lands made up the rest of the numbers, with the result that only a real small portion, as low as about 20%, were actually lands of some reasonable use. If you know anything about Russia at the turn of the 18th century, you'll know that it hadn't always been this way. Russia had actually owned portions of the profitable Baltic provinces. Provinces with dense populations, developed economies, and critically important ports, as Sweden found out for itself, but these had actually been lost to Sweden in the early 1600s, thanks in most part to Gustavus Adolphus. It was to be Peter's destiny to reverse these trends. By the time of his death, he'd be responsible for having shone the spotlight on Russia for reasons both good and bad. The rise of Russia in the Western estimation meant that old alliances and diplomatic traditions had to be re-evaluated. The book no longer stopped with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in Europe's east, and as Peter's achievements had demonstrated, all it took was the iron will of an autocratic ruler to turn the situation around. Bending his subjects to his will, eliminating opposition to his reign, imagined or real, forcing through reforms and taxes which were unpopular, Peter declared his intention to bring Russia up from the edge of civilization, even if it killed her. The process may well have cut short his own life, as the act of riding thousands of miles across the continent to battle enemies and force his will and conduct diplomacy no doubt took its toll, and Peter died at the age of just 52. On his deathbed, no doubt, Russians across the world could be thankful that a messy succession would not be the result, as there had been when Ivan the Terrible had died, and ushered in the so-called Time of Troubles in Russia as the 1500s became the 1600s, and potentates both foreign and domestic sought to gain the Russian throne. Indeed, Peter was succeeded by his grandson, Peter II, but there may have been those in Russia that wondered at what might have been, even if they wouldn't have dared to voice their opinions. 1718, you see, had been a difficult year for the Romanov family, and especially between Peter and his son Alexis. For many years, the impact on Alexis's development of having a father as successful and physically imposing took its toll. When he was barely nine years old, Peter ordered that Alexis's mother be taken to a convent, where she would remain out of the young Alexis's life for the next 20 years. The impact of seizing and then removing such an important figure out of the young boy's life wrought havoc, predictably enough, on his overall development. Alexis was passed between a succession of tutors and governors, few of whom showed him affection or real care. Passed through life in such a way, Alexis was repeatedly met by Peter, who didn't appreciate the impact such an upbringing would have on his son. As an energetic man of boundless curiosity and passions, Peter couldn't accept anything less from his shy, timid, bookish son. As Alexis grew into adolescence, Peter grew even more demanding that his son take up the reins of responsibility which were really necessary if he was to one day lead this new Russia that Peter was so tirelessly building. Yet the more that Peter visited Alexis, the less he liked when he saw him. The unhappier Peter grew with Alexis, the more he lost his temper and lashed out at his son. And the more he did this, the more the problems worsened. The recipe was disaster, because Alexis pined for approval from his father, but he also harboured a deep-seated fear of him in all forms. 
He feared his father, that he might demand things from him or interrogate him for information on what he had learned that day or what he thought of a given subject. The relationship, if looked at objectively and considering the evidence we now possess, is probably one of those textbook examples of what happens when the father expects so much of the son, yet never invests enough love and attention into him to justify such expectation. The tragic part of the relationship is that it never needed to progress in such a manner. Peter displayed incredible reserves of patience and stamina when dealing with the most frivolous and irritating of individuals, yet when it came to his son, he seemed to have simply expected him to be better. Physically, Alexis didn't even measure up to his father, as Alexis never grew above six feet tall, which meant that his father towered over Alexis, just like he towered over everyone else. This relationship worsened, like a broken bone, never given adequate time to heal, into a far worse and ultimately more fatal condition. While Peter was confined to the Western theatre as he pursued the war against Sweden and searched for allies, Alexis stayed at home and attempted to drink his troubles away. While the cat's away, the mice will certainly play, but Alexis's behaviour only further alienated him from his father. The last time he saw him before Peter's journey west, in early 1716, Peter had issued him with a kind of ultimatum. Either Alexis would become the man Peter imagined, only laziness was preventing him from being, or Alexis had to renounce his succession to the Russian Tsardom, and what was more, he had to become a monk. Peter had then left for the West, and as we saw, Alexis had spent the months drinking his sorrows away in an attempt to forget the whole ordeal for over half the year. Yet, by the end of August 1716, Alexis could hide from the reality of the situation no longer. Writing from Copenhagen, Peter again demanded an answer from his underperforming son. Either take up the standard and march to join him in Denmark, or admit his inadequacies and become a monk. Incredibly, Alexis had declared his intention in the previous year to do exactly that. He would renounce his claims on the Russian throne and live a quiet life away from Moscow, St. Petersburg, and, crucially, perhaps in the mind of Alexis, the judging eyes of his father. All Alexis wanted, it seemed, was to be free of Peter's demands and expectations, and Peter had initially been shocked at Alexis's insistence that he would rather take the vows and become a monk than take up his birthright in the title of Tsar. After Peter had fought so hard to make the title of Tsar worthy, how could his son just throw the opportunity to build upon what his father had done? away. Peter didn't understand it, and in one of the rare acts of warmness shown by father to son, Peter visited Alexis in early 1716, where he found his son ill in bed. Alexis always seemed ill whenever Peter visited him, largely because, through illness, he could excuse himself from his father's presence on a valuable pretext. This time, all that Peter wanted was to be sure that Alexis was absolutely sure about his decision. Letters had been written and Alexis had declared himself willing to give up the succession to the Russian throne, but Peter couldn't bring himself to believe his son until he saw him say it with his own eyes and until he heard it with his own ears. Thus we have the aforementioned scene where Peter confronted Alexis before he headed west to rouse the Allies against Sweden in early 1716. And upon his departure, Alexis made great efforts to forget all his father had said and just of one giant party. He literally leapt out of the bed as soon as Peter left the room. All time will pass, though, and by August 1716, as we saw, Peter was demanding his son's final answer. Like a contestant at a high-stakes game show, Alexis was required to make a life-changing decision which he would never be able to take back. Faced with such a conundrum, 
perhaps fundamentally unable to make such decisions on account of his development, Alexis decided to choose neither option A nor option B. Instead, with his domineering father away from Russia, he would choose option C. He would flee the country and take refuge in the court of his brother-in-law, who, just so you know, happened to be the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VI. So it was that on the evening of the 10th of November, 1716, the Vice-Chancellor of the Imperial Court in Vienna was awoken by a servant who knocked urgently on his bedchamber door. Given the all-clear the servant entered and he told this Vice-Chancellor, account Sean Bourne, that the son and heir of the Russian Empire was demanding asylum with the Emperor. As the servant was continuing in his story, who should burst into the room but Alexis himself, the, the pale, gaunt and deeply anxious-looking Romanov, looked nothing like his confident, calm and patient father. Having travelled hundreds of miles to Vienna in search of sanctuary from his father's incessant demands on his person, Alexis just wanted to get away from it all. Yet his decision to flee to Vienna with the help of some friends in Moscow put the emperor in one of the strangest positions of his reign. Now, suddenly without much warning, the Habsburgs were in the middle of a family affair which had grave potential to spill out into other quarters. For some time, it was known in certain circles that many in Russia did not appreciate the reign of Peter the Great. To them, Peter's disarming of the Orthodox clergy, his massive taxes and his empowering of new noble families were grave errors that had to be rolled back. Alexis, known as a petrified opponent of his father by nature, if nothing else, was an ideal candidate to lead such an opposition, even if Alexis had absolutely no intention of being such a leader or a leader full stop. Whether he desired said leadership or not, though, what the circumstances of Alexis's arrival meant to Vienna was that all the rumours and whispers about Peter's domestic situation were about to culminate. Perhaps Peter had pushed his realm too hard, and now his subjects were about to depose him. Perhaps a civil war was shortly to follow, and this was the first of Alexis's efforts to gain foreign supporters. Perhaps the seemingly all-powerful Tsar had made too many enemies in this climb to the top. All such questions no doubt swirled through Emperor Charles VI's mind when he considered his next step. After all, if there was to be civil war with one Romanov in each side, Charles didn't want his family to pick the wrong side and end up alienated by the fury of the victorious Russian faction. However, at the same time, Alexis had requested asylum and Charles was honour-bound to grant it to him even if the affair hadn't been personal and the Emperor Alexis hadn't been Charles's brother-in-law. Charles dealt with this potentially riotous diplomatic incident by hiding all details of it. Alexis had at least travelled incognito to Vienna, so his identity would remain a matter of total secrecy, and he and his party would be transferred to a remote castle in the mountains, where detachments of several guards would prevent any nosy passers-by from inquiring on the inhabitants within. In the meantime, Charles would just have to see what happened once Peter discovered his son had fled, and according to those rumours, fled into the Holy Roman Empire. It didn't take long for the incredible truth to leak out, of course. The Tsar's son was missing, and apparently he had fled from his own father, but where was he? Well, Peter couldn't be sure, so in the midst of his own personal rage and deeply felt shame, he ordered his ambassador in Berlin to begin searching North Germany for his son, while his envoy at Vienna would journey to Amsterdam, meet with Peter in person, and receive instruction there. Charles was certainly glad he had kept everything quiet, 
since this meant that the Russian ambassador should be as in the dark as everyone else was to Alexis's true location. Initially as well, Peter's search turned up nothing. Charles and his aides in the know remained tight-lipped, and Peter's agents couldn't find any evidence even while they operated with the Emperor's best wishes. After a while, though, they began to have some luck. The bribed clerk declared that some luck could be had if one would search in the Tyrol region, while Peter's agents there followed additional leads until Alexis's castle refuge was located. By now it was March 1717, and the ordeal had been going on long enough. With the cat out of the bag, Peter himself sent as direct a telegram as he dared to the Emperor, and Charles was left in a quandary. Left with few other options, he elected to stall for time. First, he disputed the Tsar's information, protesting innocence and incredulity in response to Peter's claims. Then he sent an envoy to the castle where, indeed, Alexis had been staying, and told him the game was up, and that it was time he considered going home. Alexis put on such a desperate and pitiful display of grief, terror and stress, wailing aloud in Russian and begging the envoy not to send him away, that the envoy returned to Charles, thoroughly shaken and concerned that something strange must be going on in the Kremlin these days. What on earth could make the son of the Tsar so afraid to return home? Faced with such a performance, the envoy recommended that another option other than just simple repatriation be found for Alexis, and Charles, who was sympathetic to his brother-in-law's plight anyway, concurred. Alexis was to spend the next five months in Naples. Naples had been granted to the Emperor as per the Treaty of Utrecht, which brought the war of the Spanish succession to an end. Unfortunately for Alexis, though, this place was to be nothing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Nothing like the quiet refuge of his castle in the Tyrol. For one, the security detail assigned to him in his travels to Italy hadn't been nearly as careful as the one that had brought him to the first hiding place, and Russian agents soon got wind of Alexis's travel plans and destination. 
They kept a watchful eye on Alexis for the next five months, and they wrote regularly to an increasingly enraged Tsar about his son's whereabouts. As Peter had travelled through Europe in the nine months since Alexis's flight, he had been forced to endure rumour and weighted stares regarding the nature of his clearly failing relationship with his son. Tired of this whole experience, shamed and of course deeply angered by such gossip, Peter turned his fury not at the mudslingers but at once again his own son. Furthermore, Peter knew, thanks to Alexis's ease of travel through Habsburg domains, that Emperor Charles had lied to him, and several times for that matter. Seeking to deal with the incident once and for all, he sent his best diplomat, Peter Tolstoy, ancestor to the more famous Leo Tolstoy, but famed in his own day for epic diplomatic missions to both Constantinople and Poland in the years before. Tolstoy made straight for Vienna, it was time to end this little charade with the Emperor once and for all. Tolstoy found Charles VI respectful but cautious. The Emperor would neither apologise for his past lies, nor accept that Alexis was in fact needed back in Russia. Instead, Charles wanted assurances from Tolstoy and Peter that his son would not be harmed or killed as was the rumoured to be punishment awaiting him, some said at the Tsar's own personal instruction and hands. Peter's own campaign of pressure, particularly on Alexis's German mother-in-law, had also worked wonders, since many German agents now worked and aided their Russian peers in the investigation. Of course, such a wide amount of individuals working on the affair meant that it soon became the gossip of first these individuals' households, and soon after of Europe itself. Charles managed to excuse himself of responsibility for the whole ordeal, by claiming to the Tsar that he had only wanted what was best for father and son, and that he had never held Alexis as prisoner, nor allowed him to fall into hostile hands, which included, it was inferred, those agents of the Tsar Peter. The long-winded reply again contained no apologies, but it did grant Peter's agents, including Tolstoy, the permission to journey to Naples to speak with Alexis. Before watching them go, Charles ensured that his own viceroy in Naples understood that under no circumstances was Alexis to be bungled into a carriage and stolen away, nor was he to be assassinated. Indeed, this strange drama on imperial soil was to continue, and Charles's agents were to keep watch over Alexis should anything happen and the Russian heir need their protection. Inviting Alexis to meet with him, the viceroy in Naples put the fear of orthodox God into Alexis when he entered the Viceroy's palace to find Tolstoy in his large bodyguard with him. Tolstoy was known as an uncompromising, relentlessly loyal agent of the Tsars, and Alexis knew he could never expect to be free of him without some significant action. Yet when they did meet on the 26th of September 1717, Alexis was greeted with warmth and concern and handed a letter from his father. With trembling hands, Alexis opened the letter from Peter and began to read. The letter read... My son, your disobedience and the contempt you have shown for my orders are known to the world. Neither my words nor my corrections have been able to bring you to follow my instructions. And last of all, having deceived me when I bade you farewell, and in defiance of the oaths you made, you have carried disobedience to the highest pitch and put yourself about like a traitor under foreign protection. This is a thing hitherto unheard of, not only in our family but among subjects of any consideration. What wrong and what grief have you thereby occasioned to your father, and what shame you have drawn upon your country. I wish to you, for the last time, to tell you that you are to do what Messrs. Tolstoy, etc., 
will tell you and declare to be my will. If you are afraid of me, I assure you and I promise to God in his judgment that I will not punish you. If you submit to my will by obeying me and if you return, I will love you better than ever. But if you refuse, then I as father, by virtue of the power I have received from God, give you my everlasting curse. And as your sovereign, I declare you traitor. And I assure you I will find the means to use you as such, in which I hope God will assist me and take my just cause into his hands. As for what remains, remember I forced you to do nothing. What need had I to give you a free choice if I'd wished to force you? Was it not in my power to do so? I had but to command, and I would have been obeyed. Peter At this, the first contact with his much-feared father in nearly a year, Alexis managed to find some solace. Peter no longer presented that ultimatum which demanded he either quit to a monastery or become something he was not. He was willing to rely on his father's good graces, but he still needed some time to think his position over. Two days later, when Tolstoy returned, Alexis informed them that he was still frightened of his father, and at this Tolstoy flew into a rage, roaring that if Alexis did not go home this minute, Peter himself would invade the Empire and capture Alexis himself. Over the coming days, Tolstoy waged an emotional war against the battered Alexis, bribing officials to whisper threatening bits of gossip in Alexis's ear, and claiming that the Tsar was marching towards Silesia with an army of 100,000 men. Tolstoy turned to Alexis's mistress, the peasant girl whom he had travelled across Europe with. With additional bribes and threats, Tolstoy used this girl to persuade Alexis to return home. Alexis had been broken, and he now resigned himself hopelessly to the meeting ahead. Yet, as time passed, the letters between he and his father became less pained. Has Peter finally realised that fear and intimidation only worsened the problem? Perhaps. When Alexis requested that he be allowed to live a quiet life in a country house, away from everything and free from his father's unrelenting pressures, when he could marry this peasant girl, Peter declared, Perhaps he may doubt whether he will be allowed to do this, but let him reason thus. When I have pardoned such a great crime, why should I not allow this little matter? It was a valid question, rhetorical as it was in Peter's case. If the Tsar was not about to execute his son for this embarrassing flight, he surely didn't care all that much about the other details. He just wanted his son home. Events now moved quickly. Tolstoy wished to avoid any other vestiges of protocol and instead planned to spirit Alexis home as quickly as possible. Pushing through the Italian peninsula and making it through Vienna in a single night, Tolstoy hoped to reach Russia before any person... Even the Emperor could object. Yet there was a problem, because as much as Charles would have loved to have removed the Alexis-shaped thorn from his side, he needed to make sure, for the sake of his own personal honour, that Alexis was not being forced to leave his lands against his will. With this aim in mind, Charles set about engineering what amounted to a diplomatic incident. He surrounded the inn, where Tolstoy was staying with his travelling band of soldiers, and ensured that the governor of Moravia, acting under his orders was able to meet with Alexis face to face. By this point, resigned to his fate, Alexis gave some excuse about not possessing any dress clothes as the reason for not staying any longer in Vienna, and added that he was very much eager to see his homeland again. With this, the governor of Moravia's job, and by proxy, Charles's job, was complete. They had fulfilled their role as hosts, and now the man who was once their charge was fit to leave their lands. Charles would have been relieved to see him go without many 
major diplomatic incidents, though he must have known at the same time that Alexis would have a hard time ahead of him. Leaving the Emperor's lands before the worst of the snows set in in October 1717, Alexis may well have hoped that his father would be true to his word. Like everything else in the relationship between Peter and Alexis though, the outcome was far from simple. Reaching the outskirts of Moscow on the 21st of January 1718, Alexis awaited his father with bated breath. By the 3rd of February, Alexis was on trial, but there was no alarm because this was in accordance with his old pledge to give up the succession and retire to a quiet country life. Peter saw his son for the first time in two years when he had told him of the weight of his decision and then travelled west in early 1716. Everything had changed since then. Peter opened up the proceedings by loudly denouncing his son, criticising his decisions to abandon all of his duties and condemning his actions as those of a weak-willed man. This humiliation done, Peter then confirmed that he had promised to show clemency to his son, whom he still loved, but now the condition was added that Alexis must reveal the names of those who were his accomplices in his escape and those who had conspired to see Peter removed through that process. Alexis was horrified. Peter had turned this ceremony of renunciation into a trial and was now clearly determined to root any thread of opposition to his regime. If he couldn't find any such threads, he would create them from the terrified ramblings and admissions of a heavily sweating Alexis. People who had comforted Alexis in the past, who had agreed that Peter had been too harsh when talking with him, and who had said that Alexis would have peace when he was Tsar and not his father, every one of these people and the words they had once spoken to the terrified Alexis in times of comfort or secrecy were now exposed. Peter evidently believed that Alexis could not have acted alone in his schemes to evacuate the country, and he was intensely curious over how far up the state such scheming went. Alexis was brought into a small antechamber alone with Maria's father and another witness, and he told them everything, even things he only half remembered. By doing so, he doomed a large number of mostly innocent people to death or grave injury, people whose only guilty action had been to grumble along with the troubled Russian heir in an effort to soothe his plight. Now these individuals, once sympathetic of Alexis, were to suffer through their behaviour. Peter was convinced that if he squeezed, a conspiracy at the root of such behaviours would be forced out. Through February 1718, the net widened as several hundred courtiers and officials were caught for saying or thinking or identifying with Alexis, or even being seen with Alexis, or, in the case of Peter's first wife, who was also dragged up from a distant convent, being related to Alexis. Alexis was the unfortunate victim of this conspiracy, caught up in it because of his weakness and fear, Peter believed. Surely there would be someone at the bottom of it all who knew who was truly responsible. Peter believed that the ends justified the means, and on the 26th of March 1718, in front of a crowd of over 30,000 people in Red Square, several of the so-called conspirators were broken on the wheel, impaled, or killed in other horrific ways. No matter how many people Peter destroyed in this way, no conspiracy could be found. Such a fact gnawed at Peter, and he increasingly came to regard his son as a somehow threatening presence. Even if Alexis had not been proved guilty for plotting against his father, Peter reasoned that neither Alexis nor many of his subjects had come across specially loyal or generous to his regime either. 
Perhaps this stung Peter's pride, considering all he had really done for Russia over the decades. Indeed, the Tsar had done much, but as surely as European courts seemed to see the rise of Moscow, the residents of that very city instead saw their own plight rise, the rise of taxes, of prices, of the commitments they were expected to bear, of military demands on the nobles, of demands upon their houses, livestock and goods for the soldiers in need of provisions. Peter was certainly engineering an empire, but we'd be wrong if we forget that he was leaving behind several people in several areas as he did it. That these same people wished for the old ways is scarcely surprising, and a younger, calmer Peter would certainly have appreciated that change was not always everyone's favourite flavour. In his mid-40s by 1718 now, though, and worn out with the experiences of war and rule, much of Peter's reserves of patience and mercy had dried up. How dare these people oppose me, the Tsar exclaimed. Do they not see what I have sacrificed for them? By the time Alexis had returned to his sight in spring 1718, Peter seemed to have lost a part of himself along the way. Now in order to protect all he had invested and built over the last two and a half decades, he was prepared to do anything, even the unthinkable, to get to the truth. He began by questioning that peasant girl whom Alexis had been so fond of. Unfortunately for Alexis, she proved willing to parrot every bad word Alexis had ever said of his father, and every curse, whether he meant it or not, that he had laid at his father. Then Alexis was brought in to meet with his father, and Peter confronted him with the allegations. This tense and weighted scene was the subject of that famous painting by Nikolai Gay, in it, the Tsar sits heavily on a chair, wearing boots which to this day can still be found in the Kremlin, by the way. Peter's face is stern, and an eyebrow is raised as he awaits an answer. Standing next to him is the thin, weakly portrayed Alexis, dressed in black like his father and staring awkwardly at the floor. Alexis's face bears the worry and depression only his father could instill in him, and he seemed seriously pained under the microscope of Peter's gaze while Peter's face bears the kind of impatience and frustration only his son seemed able to evoke in him. The painting is a striking reflection of the kind of presence that Peter brought, and the kind of spectacle that Alexis faced on a regular basis, and that he had been so desperate to get away from. Confronting Alexis with his lover's allegations, Alexis's excuses melted away, first under his father's gaze, and then once his lover was brought in to repeat the same allegations, he crumbled under such close scrutiny, and Alexis's inherent weaknesses only enraged Peter further, especially when discussing the difficult military revolts that Peter had endured in Mecklenburg, which Alexis had reportedly learned of and rejoiced, apparently expecting that the rioters would kill the Tsar. This moment of weakness to which his lover had been a witness was now ammunition to be used against Alexis, especially when he seemed to tell his father that if the Mecklenburg soldiers had requested he join them under pain of death, he would have done so. In other words, rather than be willing to brave the threat of death out of loyalty to his father, Alexis demonstrated the crime of his own inherent fear of death and pain once again. It was more than Peter could take. After seeing his son capitulate on so many occasions, this last confession was the final straw. Appealing first to the clergy and then to the secular court, Peter acquired from these peers of the realm the acceptance of his plan that he needed. Through their justification, 
Peter would be able to detain and examine Alexis, which, in the language of 18th century Russia, meant that the father would be permitted to torture the son. This judgment was passed on a crushed Alexis on the 16th of June 1718, and three days later the torture began. Under such terrible circumstances did Alexis, of course, confess anything to make the pain stop. During the process, he told Tolstoy that, to make the pain cease, he would have been willing to employ the Holy Roman Emperor to invade Russia so that he could seize the Russian throne. As he passed into delirium from the pain and toil of the ordeal, a document passed across Peter's desk on the 24th of June. This was the statement of the realm's intent to execute Alexis for his crimes and conspiracies against the Tsar. Alexis was to be condemned to die for the design of rebellion, the like of which was hardly ever heard in the world, joined to that of a hard double patricide, first against the father of the country and then against his father by nature. The sentence had been passed by the Russian senators, but it required the Tsar's signature to become law. One imagines his pen hovering over the document, as the Tsar thought to himself whether he was really going to sign his son's death warrant. It was still not too late to forego the whole process and send his son into exile. I mean, he was the Tsar. He could do anything he wanted. Then, at the last moment on the 26th of June, still having delayed signing the document, Peter received word from his son. Alexis was gravely ill and he wished to see his father. The imperial envoy, who was present in Moscow, described the scene. He said, The Tsar went to see his dying son, who at the sight of his father, burst into tears and with his hands folded, spoke to him to this effect, that he had grievously and heinously offended the majesty of God Almighty and the Tsar, that he hoped he would die of the sickness, and that even if he lived he was unworthy of life. Therefore he begged his father only to take from him the curse he laid upon him at Moscow, to forgive him all his heavy crimes, to give him his paternal blessing and to cause prayers to be said for his soul. During these moving words, the Tsar and the whole company almost melted away in tears. His Majesty returned a pathetic answer and represented to him in a few words all the offences he had committed against him. But then he gave him all his forgiveness and blessings, after which they parted with an audience of tears and lamentations on both sides. By that evening, on the 26th of June, 1718, Alexis was dead. At the very least in his final moments, perhaps, Alexis was comforted by the prospect of having his sins against his father forgiven. Yet not even the most sympathetic of Peter's biographers can deny that what occurred to Alexis was neither justified nor reasonable. Alexis was the victim of the perceived conspiracy that Peter saw around him, as much as he was the victim of Peter's failed efforts at fatherhood. The Tsar, it seemed, had been able to conquer vast lands to implement sweeping reforms and leave a legacy without equal in Russian history. When it came to being a father to a son, though, Peter was anything but great. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this examination of a story from history as incredible as it is moving and tragic. This is what we do at When Diplomacy Fails, and here in When Diplomacy Fails Thinks, this is what we're all about. So, I hope you'll share the news of this episode to your other history friends, and maybe even read the blog post on this event if you're looking for more information, and maybe you want to see that famous painting by Nikolai Gay. 
Until then, though, thanks for listening, history friends. My name is Zach. You've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails Thinks. And I'll be seeing you all next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.